You take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 10. Now, would like to read the text before us. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are, mis are mischief and iniquity. He sits in the ambush, in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 10 is one of those psalms that is uh, calling out to us to remember the character of our sinful nature as compared to the character of our great God. Now I want to use some uh, statistics here. We don't do this all the time, but I thought these would help. The United States is living in a state right now of what I would call and what many have called practical atheism. Practical atheism. The Gallup poll recently done in 2012 says, and, it, and Gallup is one of the most authoritative uh, bureaus for finding out these types of things. That's why I use them. 77% of people in the United States affiliate with Christianity. 77%. 70% of people, when asked, say they are very or moderately involved in religious practice. 83% of people 
in the United States say that they are involved in some form of religion, organized religion, or spiritual uh, undertaking. 83%. And yet, at 3801 Lancaster Drive, a house of horrors can unfold. You might not be very familiar with that address. You should be. I should be. And we should be ashamed that a country that claims to be 77% Christian knows nothing or very little of that address. Dr. Kermit Gosnell is a 72-year-old African-American doctor. By outward appearance, he looks like you. He looks like me. He's well-trained. Some would say he's extremely successful. He's a multimillionaire. He runs a clinic innocently called a clinic for women's health. It's been in operation now since the early 90s. The last state health inspection conducted on the property that is recorded was in the mid-90s. Since 2009, his employees say that the number of children murdered who were born alive because of botched second and third trimester abortions, which are completely illegal in the state of Pennsylvania. The number of babies murdered that were born alive really can't be counted. They were murdered by, as one of his associates said, the practice of beheading. Because medically, when you sever the brain from the rest of the body, that's what you've done. Dr. Gosnell called it snipping. Taking surgical scissors, placing them at the base of the brain, and clipping the spinal cord of healthy, living, crying babies. That's hard enough. But a nation that claims to be 77% Christian and has set up all manner of health inspection, medical inspection, allowed it to practice since the mid-90s. Dr. Gosnell was taken before grand jury, or his case was, and it is going before the state courts of Pennsylvania, and it opened actually this month, or the end of last month. There were two press members in the gallery to hear the opening arguments of the state, too. It's unfathomable to us, isn't it? that this type of thing happens. Let me just tell you, it's one of the worst cases of racism and butcher for profit known in our country, possibly in our history. 
But it is not the only case. Because you see, since Dr. Gosnell was put out of practice in 2011, Florida has also found and discovered like cases that are being investigated. My suspicion is there are these types of practices taking place in every state in the United States of America. In a country that claims to be 77% Christian. But that shouldn't horrify us any more than to look in our own mirrors. See, what Dr. Gosnell is doing for profit and we look at and say is so heinous doesn't come from without. It comes from within. His practice preyed on poor minority women. He convinced them that even after eight to ten abortions, they could have children easily as they got older. This is not true. Many of their wombs were ruptured. Some of their bowels were ruptured in these procedures. At least two women are dead. At least. Because see, the poor don't have a voice often in our Christian society. The poor don't often have a place to turn to for help. He recognized this. He charged between $325 to $1,600, all based on the size of the baby and the lateness of the pregnancy. He took, when questioned, he said by his associates, why do we have a separate place for white women? He said, because white women will call and report us for our practices. But black women and Hispanic women are afraid to. He made this comment. This one is the most chilling possibly. After delivering a 26-year-old healthy boy who cried for 20 minutes and then was snipped, he handed it to his female assistant and said, that one was big enough it could have walked me to the bus stop. It's not popular to talk about these things in public. Let's keep these things out of sight. Let's keep them behind closed doors. Let's don't talk about them. It's just this kind of oppression that David is talking about in Psalm 10. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in time of trouble? He's asking a question which he knows the answer to, but he's asking it to bring forward just this type of injustice that's being acted out. And it's not just the United States, and it's not just in our day that these things have taken place. I was recently reading of an archaeologist and a historian who did work in Germany and Eastern Europe for the last 10 years uncovering camps that were used by the Nazi government. Records of camps, remains of camps that were used by the Nazi government during Hitler's reign over that era of time in the 40s, the late 30s and 40s. He said, when we started our process 10 years ago, we expected to find somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand internment camps where people were sent for forced labor or to die or prostitution or any forced 
camp setting. We expected about 1,000. What we found were over 42,000 camps. They ranged from eight up to hundreds. Germany also during that time would have been considered a Christian nation. The reason that these atrocities can take place in nations like ours or 20th century Germany, the reason is because Christians are out of touch often with the injustices of our world. We've pulled away from the mainstream and we have said in our subculture, all is well. David didn't make this error. David never turned. David, may we remind one another, was not poor. David was not powerless. David was privileged. And yet, he is identifying in our psalm and in many other psalms with the actions of people who often claim to be followers of God, but act out these great injustices on people that can't defend themselves. David addressed those things, identified with those things, and talked about them publicly. He asked these kinds of questions. And he gives a great answer here that I think answers for us these hearts that I've brought forward. So let me first say there is a question in chapter 10, verses one, verse 1. And I've read it now twice. His question is not, why does God not exist? But rather, why does God not do something about the injustice that's being carried out in front of him? He can see it. Why can't God act on it? And really, this question is not David's question, I do not believe. Because in verse 13, if you look over to verse 13, this is what is being said in the wicked's heart. He's saying, you will not call to account. Right? So that's the same basic answer or question that's being asked in verse 1. Why is God so far away? Why is God not helping us in times of trouble? Verse 13 says it's the wicked who are saying this. David doesn't say this. David knows where God is. David understands that God is just. But the people in his nation are asking this question. And I think many of you may be asking this question. On much smaller scales, when you are treated unjustly, or when your friends are treated unjustly, or when your family member goes before a court of law and is treated unjustly. Many of you are asking, where is God when this is taking place? Why is He not standing up for us? So, the first answer that He gives is the practical atheist's character. He says, this is the character of a practical atheist. And I say practical atheist because these people would answer. The people carrying out the atrocities and the injustices of David's day would have answered, there is a God. Therefore, technically, philosophically, they were not atheists. They believed there was a God. But they are practically that because they don't think God cares or acts in our world. Many of the founders of our country were practical atheists. We call, they were called deists. They believed God existed. He's just disconnected from us. He doesn't intervene in our daily affairs. We do that. Many of the people who we look up to and revere at the founding of this country held that same exact belief. God created everything. He wound it up. He created the laws. He stepped away. And now it's up to us to live out our lives and make good decisions and prosper or fail all on our own. 
So they were practical atheists. And many in churches today are practical atheists. This is the character of a practical atheist. First of all, in verses 2 through 4, we see that the practical atheist is arrogant. He actually uses that word in in chapter 10, verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy of gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the arrogance of his face, the pride of his face, the anger, the pride of his anger is really what it's getting at here. The wicked does not seek him, doesn't seek God. His statement about God is, He will not call me to account. You might have seen all his thoughts are, there is no God. But basically the Hebrew seems to indicate that what's better translated here, He will not hold me to account. God will not do anything if I act unjustly. I can get away with this. Like little children, practical atheists seek to get away with as much as they feel they can get away with without being reprimanded or punished. And why do they do that? Because of the arrogance and pride of their heart which says, I deserve to be treated in such a way that I can prey on the poor, the the voiceless, the, the disadvantaged for my own advantage. That's his character. He's arrogant. He's prideful. And he sets schemes. It's not an innocent thing. It's not as if he's just going along in life and some poor people get hurt. No. He's saying, I'm laying a trap. So that they, they will come into it and then I can take, advance, uh, take uh, advantage of them. 3801 Lancaster is not in upper crust Philadelphia. He laid the trap in the poorest of the poor. Why? Because he knew they will be desperate, they will be in need, and they will come to me to seek relief. Oh, I'm helping them. I'm making their life better. All the while butchering them and their children. Why? Because he's arrogant. Because he's prideful enough to say, God will not hold me to account for this. That's the only way you can go at home and go to sleep at night is to believe, to convince yourself that's the case. That God will not do anything about this. Right? Has to be. The character of the practical atheist is, and look, it's easy to look at Kermit Gosnell and say, that's evil. What I want you to do is use him as a springboard to look at yourself and say, how am I doing this? When I take advantage of those in a a compromising position in my own life, what you need to think is, I'm no different than Kermit Gosnell. No different in my heart. I just don't have the opportunity he had. That's, That's the reality. Many of us are compromising those around us for much less than millions of dollars. So what makes us think we'd be any different? Laying the, the trap, devising the scheme in the poorest of the, around the poorest of the poor because we know like birds they will fly into the cage and then not be able to get out. Like bears hunting honey, they will run to the tree and step in the bear trap every time. Why? Because we're arrogant we set these traps. Secondly, the character of the atheist, the practical atheist, is focused, he's focused on prosperity. Verse 5. His ways 
prosper at all times. Judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He That's what it says. That's what the practical atheist does. He scoffs, he laughs, he mocks at those who would dare to call him to account on any of his actions. Because the proof is in the pudding. It's in the result. We do this in our own church world. Have you ever heard this said or said it yourself? Well, God must be pleased with what we're doing because we've got a lot of people. This many people can't be wrong. Right? Or in your business practice. You know you're cheating. Your employees know you're cheating. But you justify it by saying, well, it's no big deal because nobody's getting hurt and I'm succeeding. That's what the practical atheist does. He justifies his actions by his success. He says, I'm prospering. If this was so bad, if this was so wrong, surely I couldn't prosper at it. Indeed, a whole country can be caught in a trap like this, can it? Can't you hear, can't you hear our refrain as a country? Oh, we know those people that are poor and don't have a job and, and have no way to make their house payments. We know they don't need a loan for that house, but let's give it to them anyway because we can sell their bad debt and make money off of it. And then we justify it by saying everybody's happy. We make more money. The government looks good. And these poor people have a home to live in. Forget the fact that in two or three years they won't have anything and they'll be living on the street. Don't worry about that. The proof's in the pudding. It's in my bank account. It's in my Success. The practical atheist bases his life on arrogance and on prosperity. He says prosperity is the stamp of approval. Third, he, his character runs to his security. His security is in verse 6. You see, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet an adversary. It, it's a self-fulfilling thing. You know, like all my money and all my ability... And all my, uh, my, all my comfort and all of my upper strata living protects me. It makes me secure. I not only have a huge savings account and investments for retirement, but I have life insurance. Nobody can hurt me. Right? I'm secure in my own self. You see how these start to run together, don't you? His arrogance leads him to seek success and prosperity, which gives him a false security. He believes, nobody can take me down. I'm too big to fail. That's a laughing statement, isn't it? I'm too big to fail. Nobody's too big to fail. We know that, but we convince ourselves when we don't want to believe in God that it's just the case. It'll always be this way. I'm safe. The practical atheist exhibits the characteristic of cursing and coarse talk in verses 7. In verse 7 of our chapter. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Paul would say it like this in Romans 3. Under his tongue is the poison of an asp. Right? Jesus would say it this way in Mark 7. Those things which enter from outside the body into the man do not defile him because those things are eliminated through the natural process of 
of, of uh, digestion, right? But it's that which is inside the man which defiles him. And it goes where? From his heart to where? Out of his mouth. You can know if you're a practical atheist or not by examining your life to see if you function that way in your talking. If your talking indicates that you don't really believe there is a just God and you don't really believe that there is a God who cares about your fellow man or cares about you or is involved in your daily situation, if you talk that way, you are a practical atheist. Because it's coming from inside of you. Now when Mr. Gallup passes his poll out, those people who are one, at one breath cursing about the situation and cursing God and denying His very existence, when they get the sheet of paper in front of them, they all believe in God. And they prove it by saying, I go to church and I do good things and I give to charity. But listen, all the while we know, because we live with ourselves and we hear ourselves speak, the character of the practical atheist is based on arrogance, on prosperity, on security, and his mouth is filled with cursing and coarse language. He jokes and reviles the poor rather than help him. He says things like, the poor are poor because they make bad decisions on every case as if it's always that way. He could do better if he'd work harder. Teaching this whole false ideology of we earned everything they didn't earn anything never acknowledging God and saying I have what I have because God gave me these abilities he gave me these opportunities he supplied for me the advantage of living in a home when I was being raised to have opportunities it's not all my doing but the Practical atheist talks that way. It's very coarse. It's very jesting. It's very oppressive, even in his speech. Practical atheists finally are violent people. It's no mistake that someone like Dr. Gosnell or the doctors in Florida or the hundreds all over America or the pimps on the corner can exist in a world where we celebrate violence. It's the philosophical celebration of violence in our culture that allows this to take place as if it's normal. It's the, it's the running headlong towards the violence. Look at verses 8 through 11. This practical atheist sits in an ambush in a village, hiding in places so he might murder the innocent. His eyes watch closely for the helpless. <clears throat> there's another growing problem in the United States which is so far going pretty much unaddressed. And that is those who are preying on women. Young women and women. Not only in our nation but around the world. But you've got to understand this. Without the United States, the 22 million women living in oppression and slavery in the sex slave trade, without the United States, most of them could not be imprisoned because it's here that they're sold they're sold here as house 
uh, maids and nannies for children and personal administrative assistants. But what they do is much darker than that. We buy more than any other nation in the world right now. 22 million oppressed women are oppressed because of our practical atheism. Saying, there is no God who will hold us to account. We will continue on in generation after generation. We are prospering, so therefore we, our success proves that we are not unjust. We are the top of the line, so therefore we deserve these benefits. Violence surrounds us. The helpless are crushed. They fall by the mighty. And he says again in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. How many of those young mothers now cry, God forgot me? How many of those women suffering right now as phony housemaids when they're required to do the darkest of the dark and the vilest of the vile, lay sleeping, trying to sleep, saying, where is God? So, David's first answer to his question, or the question of the wicked, is this is the character of those who deny God. They are arrogant. They justify themselves by their prosperity. They seek out security in their own uh, success. They curse and talk coarsely about God, and they act violently towards others. But he gives a second answer. He says, this is how we should respond as God's people to the practical atheists who live all around us and attend church with us. And this is what we should say in the face of injustice, beginning in verse 12. First, we should call on God to act. Look at verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Here we see David living out his faith. He's calling on God. When's the last time we uttered prayers for those who are suffering? When we called on God to act in justice for those who are being treated unjustly? When's the last time we actually spent hours in prayer over issues like abortion and like the sex slave trade and like low wages for the minorities? When's the last time we took that cause before God and said, do something? You say, well, God will do it if He wants to. Are you a practical atheist? God has chosen to work in our world through the prayers of His people. Just like you would pray for your lost friend to be saved, wouldn't you think it's good to pray over these issues and the thousands of more issues, not just these, but the hundreds and thousands of issues that sit around us every day where injustice is being carried out and we ignore it. As if it doesn't happen. That's not what David does. He says Christians call on God to act. To lift up the hand of God and not forget the afflicted. Secondly, he says they remember God's character. Christian people in the face of practical atheism and in the face of injustice remember who God is. Look at verse 14. You are the God who sees, he says. What does he see? He sees the mischief. And the vexation that's done by the wicked. Those who take, uh, that, you make, that, that you may take it into your hand. So God not only sees it, but God is just. He's not only 
seeing and just, but he's also, in verse 14, a helper. An omnipotent, omniscient God that is helping the poor. That's who David knows him as. That's the character of our God. You have been the helper of the fatherless, the most weak and the most destitute of the world of the fatherless. And David says, you are helping them. So David calls God to action and then remembers God's character. And finally, he trusts in God. He trusts in God. Verse 16. I know he said earlier in verses 12 through 14, 15, I know, God, that you will be just. I know that you see what's going on and you have made account of it. I know that you will take action in your time. Verse 16, he reflects his trust in God. The Lord is king forever and ever. He trusts in the rule of God. God is king forever and ever. Yahweh reigns. The nations will perish, but He will reign forever. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You strengthen their heart. You incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Ultimately, David says, I see the condition of our world, and I know it is not right. My reaction to that is to call on God for action. Remember my great God's character and trust Him. Trust Him. So, Christian, we spoke to the practical atheists among us. Now let me speak to Christians. Is this the character of our life? See, it's easy when your heart is struck by a situation like I've described to you from Dr. Gosnell's practice to become despairing. And to say, nothing's going to ever change. The world is what it is. But that's not the response of a true Christian. The response of the true Christian is, I see the injustice. God, bring justice to us. Bring right action to the earth. Because of your character, oh God, I trust you. I don't always understand I don't pretend I have an answer to every small, detailed question in every situation. But I do trust you. As we look at the New Testament, we see this psalm played out again and again and again. I want to take you to one place where our Lord plays out this very principle. In Luke 18, in Luke 18, Jesus... tells a series of parables, two parables. Then he goes into some other teaching. But I want to look at these two parables because it's here that he, he is, in a sense, helping us understand the principle of Psalm 10, which is throughout the Old Testament. Okay, So though he doesn't quote Psalm 10, the principle of Psalm 10 is throughout the Old Testament. Look what he says about our action. What should we be doing as Christians about the injustice of the world? Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. He was unjust. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while the judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, he's a practical atheist. He believes there's a God, he just doesn't fear him. He doesn't respect man. He's unjust. I will give this woman justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will, ne- he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is not saying God is an unjust judge. Jesus is saying, if an unjust judge, in his injustice, is willing to give justice to a poor widow who is the least of the least in their society, If that judge who's unjust is willing to hear her case because of her persistence, how much more will your Father in heaven who loves you hear you if you pray to Him without ceasing? That's what Jesus says. But the question He asks is, when Jesus comes, will He find people praying like this? Will He find His people With this type of persistence. With faith in the character of God as Psalm 10 says. With faith in the rule of God, the character of God and calling out to Him to change this world's condition. Will Jesus find that? Let it be so in Grace Fellowship. Let us be a people who are crying out to Him. Not just on the cases like Dr. Gosnell, but... Because we can't forget the next parable. Crying out on our own behalf for our own sin. Look at the next parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, what Jesus seems to be saying here is, I know when I come again, I will find people like this Pharisee. I know I'll find that. There's no question those people exist, right? That stand alone by themselves and say, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, exhorting extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I'm a 77 percenter in the United States. I affiliate with Christianity. That's what this Pharisee is basically saying. I give tithes of all that I get. He's not moderately, but very involved with religion. Right? Jesus knows these people exist, and they will exist until he comes again. But the tax collector standing far back, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I I equate the widow in the first parable with the tax collector in the second. You won't cry out to God unceasingly for him to act justly until you identify with your own sin and say, I'm a sinner. We won't bring right light on cases like Dr. Gosnell's until we bring right light on our own sin.
The reason our world is muffled on this case is because our world knows they have set up the system by which this practice happens. Now, I'm not accusing. Do not misplace that. I'm not saying that people who believe in pro-choice agenda would condone what Dr. Gosnell has done. I don't believe many would. Some, but not many. But they know, the reason they won't speak out is they know it's their system which has created this animal and allowed it to exist under the pure light of day. Did it exist prior to the abortion laws being legalized? Yes, but it was few and far between because you couldn't put a sign out and put a name like women's clinic on it and call people from the poor sections of town to come to you. You had to do it quietly. So, it, so they're muffled because they're not identifying with their own sin. They're not saying, I'm a sinner, and my choices have allowed for this, and then they're crying out to God to do something about it. It's the same for us. You'll never stand up for injustice in the world till you recognize you're part of the injustice. You're not righteous on your own, but you're in need of God. Then you will cry for God to do something. I'm not advocating vigilante type of response. That's not godly. That, again, shows a lack of identity with the second parable, understanding our own sin. When people seek to take out justice on others in their own hands, that shows they don't see themselves as sinners. Jesus never condoned that. Jesus said, identify with the mercy of God for you, and then cry out for God to act justly in other cases. What does Jesus say at the end of the second parable? He doesn't say it at the end of the first. He says it at the end of the second, though. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified. Not the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you're arrogant in your own life, you will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How can we enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? He answers it in verse 15. They brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God truly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it if you're not willing to step away from your practical atheism which leads to arrogance which leads to basing your life around principles of prosperity rather than principles of scripture Finding security in your own self. Leading you into rebellion that comes out usually in violence and cursing and coarse talking. If you're not willing to walk away from that, God will humble you. He will humble you. But if you walk away from that and humble yourself before the mighty King of kings and Lord of lords and say, I'm in need of your mercy, He will hear you. He will receive you like a father receives a child. The hope for our world, indeed the hope for Dr. Gosnell, lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nowhere else will we find peace. Nowhere else will we find justice. Only in Christ.